The Terrifying Lies Podcast, with music and stories by Craig Nibo. At the moment of recording this, it's April 13th, 2022. I want to tell you about something time-sensitive. I'm about to kickstart something that might interest you. For the past couple of years, I've been working on a musical called Tesla v. Cthulhu. It pits Nikola Tesla against three witch cultists of Cthulhu, along with the old god himself. Cthulhu's plan? Subjugate the earth and turn everyone into slaves. It falls to Tesla and a few of his friends to save us all from suppression and ignominious thraldom under the iron glove of a pan-galactic evil despot. I recently finished composing the music and would be thrilled if you would consider backing the Kickstarter when it starts at an approaching yet undetermined date. You can get more information and read about the musical by visiting craignibo.com. Welcome to the Terrifying Lies Podcast Season 1, Episode 1. I am your host. My name is Craig Nibo. I love short fiction. Sadly, short stories currently are not in demand. They belong to a bygone world where people subscribe to pulp magazines like Weird Tales and Amazing Stories. There's still some periodicals and anthologies around, but they just don't sell well. It seems now that we short story writers have lost our readers to smartphone apps and social networking. Oh well, times change. Call me a relic, but I still enjoy a good yarn written in 1,500 to 7,500 words. Short story writing is a craft in and of itself. I've read too many short stories that are nothing more than a snatch of time during a character's everyday life or a description of a rogue walking down a dark street. Characters that make life-changing decisions and suffer the consequences drive the best short stories. I hope you enjoy this collection. Consider them peaks into the lives of mostly unfortunate souls as they face their penultimate hours of elation or dread. The Mechanic, written and read by Craig Nibo. The terror of Breakwater ended in May of 1893. Chip Seeley and Sheriff Flannerly arrested Jericho Riley, which surprised everyone. For three long years, we were not allowed to play outside after dusk. We all knew the stories about Mr. Dark, so we had named him, and his skulking around Sweetgrass County at night, taking lives. It started with a girl named Naomi Welling. A ranch hand found her on a riverbank, stripped and blue. Our parents had kept the most horrible details of the slaying from us, but we knew what the word murder meant. In school, at the beginning of each year, Mrs. Cranberry made us take turns reading the Ten Commandments. She once asked me to stand and read Commandment number 6, Thou shalt not kill. The archaic law was an easy enough concept to understand. Once a man decides to take the life from a creature, he can't give it back. The process is irreversible. There's no restitution for such an act. None of us knew Naomi Welling, so her murder felt removed. Mr. Dark existed as a chilling story, ripe for speculation. Most thought a drifter might have slain the girl. I suppose it's difficult to accept that someone you know, perhaps even the man next door, could be capable of such an act. It's easier to remove oneself from the evils that men are capable of. As it turned out, Mr. Dark was not a drifter. A year passed before Mr. Dark struck again. A postman found Marcus Quigley, a 14-year-old, dead in the forest just outside of Missoula. He'd been stabbed repeatedly with a short-bladed knife. His shirt had been torn off, and his skin had been slapped hundreds of times with an open palm. 
With Marcus's murder, the legend of Mr. Dark blazed afresh. Sheriff Flannerly reinstated the curfew. We could no longer play after sundown. With Marcus's murder, the drifter theory faded. Mr. Dark had to be one of our own. Mr. Dark struck again and again over the three years leading up to May of 1893. He had killed three young men, six girls, and one elderly woman before Flannerly finally caught him. Mr. Dark turned out to be Jericho Riley, a 24-year-old redhead with perfect teeth and a clear complexion. Jericho lived in Breakwater. I didn't know him personally, but my father had gone to school with Tim Riley, Jericho's father. I sat up at the top of the stairs one night and overheard him talking to my mother about Jericho. My father said Jericho's father grew up hard, always in trouble with the law. Tim had married young and abused his poor wife with brutal beatings and even more brutal words. My father knew about Tim's son, Jericho, and had felt sympathy for the young man. I knew he would go nowhere, I heard my father say to my mother as I sat at the top of the stairs, but I never imagined he could kill. I walked to school with Chad Philbin, one of my best friends. I asked him about the case. His father sat on the jury. Chad wanted the case to end so his father would stop snapping at him for little things and grounding him for being out at the creek after dusk. Chad told me that his father didn't talk much about the case, but he could see the weight in his father's eyes. We all wondered if the jury would hang Jericho. To me, even at 11 years old, it seemed obvious Jericho had killed at least three people. It seemed only fitting that he be punished in the same way that he had tortured his victims. If I had been on that jury, I would have walked lockstep with the 11 others, because that is exactly what they determined. After 25 minutes of talking it over in a private room, Chad's dad and the rest of the jurors decided that Jericho should die for what he had done. Only thing was, Jericho, mass murderer or not, grew up in breakwater. When it came down to it, none of the adults could bear the thought of aiming a hunting rifle at the boy's heart or pulling a noose around his tallowy neck. It was Phineas Aldrich, with his thick spectacles and reedy voice, who first suggested bringing in a professional. Phineas ran Aldrich Stye, a hog housing, breeding, and butchering facility. He always carried a book, rat-eared and protruding from the rear pocket of his bidalls. He must have ordered them from back east, because I went to his house one time to pick up some feed and spotted a million of them, some cracked and used, others hard-backed, crisp, new. Mr. Aldrich had read about electricity. Something new to us, an almost magical force. One time, Mr. Aldrich came over for supper. He and my father talked about electricity for hours. Mr. Aldrich told my father about two men, one named Edison, the other named Tesla. He said they were scientists and that they didn't get along. Each had his own idea about electricity and how it should work. Edison said Tesla's electricity was dangerous. He even held demonstrations where he would kill little animals like mice and cats with Tesla's electricity. With Jericho sitting in jail, Mr. Aldrich got to thinking that if Tesla's electricity could kill a small animal, maybe it could kill a murderer. He sent away for some of his scientific books and discovered a man who might be able to help with Breakwater's dilemma. Mr. Aldrich wrote a letter to the man, and the man agreed to come and see what he could do. Mr. Aldrich's discovery caused quite a stir. All of Breakwater came together in Dale Flannerly's big barn to talk about Jericho and about Mr. Aldrich's idea. Pepper, Chad Philbin, and I lay on the ground next to the back wall of the barn. We watched through a pair of loose slats and stayed quiet so we could hear without getting caught. It's the only humane solution, Mr. Aldrich said to the crowd. Can't we just send him away, Mrs. Doherty said. She sat in the front row on a long wooden bench that Mr. Flannerly had made for town meetings. It will take months to push it through. These are modern times. This problem of ours, the problem of Jericho Riley, should be handled in a modern way using modern technology. 
Why can't we just take him out back and put a gun to the nape of his neck? Gerald quickly said. I couldn't blame him. Jericho had murdered his son. He's not an animal, Mr. Aldrich said. He is an animal. Is it painless? The voice of Myron Peoples came from the back of the room. Most everyone turned to spot him. As a retired school teacher, Mr. Peoples had taught most of the older folks, and they all loved him. Though Mr. Peoples held no official government title, it seemed everyone saw him as a kind of patriarch. I squinted, staring between the parted slats, trying to spot him. He stood up at the back of the hall, a gray fedora held loosely in both pale alligator-skinned hands. Someone coughed. I assure you it is painless, Mr. Aldrich said. Science has discovered that all the body's natural functions are run with electricity. By simply overcharging the machine, it will close down quietly and painlessly. Mr. Peoples took a moment to look around the room, studying everyone's faces. Some sat with their heads down, staring at the floor. Others looked up at him, beckoning him to say something, begging Mr. Peoples to be the one to take responsibility for the choice that had to be made. Mr. Peoples stood his full height and nodded once, succinct, resolute. I suggest we listen to Phineas. He's well informed. The town meeting went on for another hour, but after Mr. Peoples had given his opinion, the choice had been made. The mechanic rolled into town on a murky day. An unseasonable cold loomed in the valley. A conglomeration of gray, brooding clouds choked out the sun's revitalizing rays. I sat on the stoop in front of Warren's mercantile, licking a pepper stick. Most of its orange and red stripes had been cleaned, leaving only a white, bony twig of sugar. I heard the rattle of the mechanic's wagon as it lumbered into town from the east. I looked up, expecting to see a black carriage, perhaps driven by a fleshless beast wearing a dark cowl. Instead, I spotted a bright red wagon, cheery, almost gypsyish with its gold-painted accents and chrome. The man sitting on the driver's bench wore a beaver-skin top hat and a smile. He winked at me as his carriage rattled by. I took another lick of my pepper stick. Did you see the mechanic? Pepper asked as she swung back and forth on the old tire my father had hung on the elm in front of my house. I pushed her again. She arched high into the air and came back. I stepped aside to let her swing past. I loved Pepper's smile, a beautiful crease in her freckled, dimpled cheeks. But she didn't smile that day. Not many of us in Breakwater smiled much after the mechanic arrived. He's a monster, isn't he? Not a monster, just a man, I said. Some people call him a monster. It's funny. What's funny? It seems some call the mechanic a monster. Others call Jericho a monster. I haven't heard anyone call them both monsters. I suppose folks can only have one monster at a time. Who do you think the real monster is? I stopped pushing Pepper and thought about her question. It was a good one. My dad takes me hunting sometimes. He even lets me use his twenty-two. One time I aimed it at Arliss. You didn't. Yep. What'd your daddy do? He tackled me to the dirt and jerked the gun out of my hands. Practically broke my finger. His face was so red. Did he whoop you? I think he was too worried about Arliss to whoop me. I tried to tell him the gun wasn't loaded or nothing, but he said it didn't matter. He said life is too fragile to toy with. Even if the gun wasn't loaded, I still pointed it at my little brother. That meant I was toying with life. So nothing happened? Uh, 
Not really, but we went hunting later that day. A wolf had killed some of our chickens and had even gotten to a couple of Mr. Kimball's lambs. We spotted it over the fence on Ray Kimball's place. My dad told me to point the gun at it. Pepper Swing came to a stop. She looked up at me, her eyes wide. I asked my dad about what he had told me, about life being fragile. I asked why it was okay to shoot the wolf, but not okay to aim the gun at Arliss, even when the gun wasn't loaded. What'd he say? He said when something comes to hurt us, an animal, even a man, that it's okay to aim a gun and even pull the trigger. But the wolf never hurt you or your daddy. That's right, but it killed some of our chickens and even a few of Mr. Kimball's lambs. I guess sometimes there's a reason to kill. A long beat passed between Pepper and I. We couldn't look at one another. We just existed in the moment, like two stones in an arid desert. Push me, Archie. With a good shove, I sent her swinging. I remember a small troop of actors that came through town once. They stopped to perform a play for all of Breakwater. It seemed everyone rolled out, carrying chairs and stools from their homes to sit and watch the actors buffoon around the stage. The play was a comedy western about an outlaw who liked to put on dresses at night and dance for money in a tavern. I didn't understand much of the story, but the grown-ups seemed to like it. They laughed, holding their bellies, many of them sipping from their brown bottles of beer or corn whiskey. The mechanic reminded me of those actors. He stood on a fold-out stage, his wagon having been converted into a makeshift theater. He wore the same beaver-skinned hat I had seen when his coach had first rattled into town. He had a finely clipped mustache, almost like a stroke of charcoal just under his nose. I think he even wore women's makeup, perhaps to look more alive for his demonstration. Scientific equipment crowded the stage. Eleven bicycles, mounted firmly to the floor slats, stood like soldiers. Each cycle had only a single polished metal disc as a wheel. Metal strings that my dad called wires octopused from the small boxes to the bases of each cycle to a larger box in the center of the stage. Atop the large box sat a chair, part metal, part wood, fitted with straps for wrists and ankles. The chair had another strange alteration, a kind of hat made from a metal bowl, crowning its tall back. The whole contraption looked futuristic, like something out of one of Mr. Aldrich's books. Ten oil lamps burned along the front and sides of the stage, illuminating the mechanic in the waning twilight. The inverted shadows on his face made him look mean, almost like a demon. His pleasant smile, which he had flashed at me when he had rolled into town, danced like a wicked smear in the flickering oil lamplight. Like when the actors had come to put on their play, almost everyone in Breakwater had turned up. Many stood on the slatted porch in front of the co-op or the livery. Some leaned against posts. Others stood with their thumbs looped into their front pockets. I spotted Mrs. Cranberry with her prim brows, her hair pulled up into a bun. I saw Uncle Stewart, his face long and pale, wearing his usual bid-alls, a white hanky dangling from his rear pocket. There was Torrance Millmouth and Charles Goodfellows fellow jurors. Both men wore stark expressions, if they felt morally culpable for the tragic thing that was about to happen. If I could have the constable and his aides bring the subject forward, the mechanic said. His voice sounded uncharacteristically high-pitched. I suppose I expected a man who dealt out death, so matter-of-factly, to have a brooding, dark voice. I suppose I expected him to hiss his words out like a serpent, or to sing them in a dirge. I felt astonished at his orderliness, his lack of theatrics. Dale Flannerly, the sheriff, and his two sons brought Jericho from the large livery doors, just two shops from where I stood. 
I noticed red rings under Jericho's moist eyes. His long hair snaked to his shoulders in greasy ropes. The crowd parted in front of the livery to allow Dale a wide berth through which to escort the mechanic's subject. I heard sobs behind me. I turned and spotted Mrs. Doherty, who had said so many vicious words about Jericho. I wondered how she could cry when her wishes were being fulfilled right before her eyes. Jericho didn't say anything as he climbed the five steps that led up to the mechanic's platform. He looked down at his bare feet, careful not to make eye contact with anyone in the crowd. If you would please have a seat, the mechanic said. Jericho glanced once up at the mechanic, then over his shoulder at Dale Flannerly. Flannerly nodded towards the chair in the middle of the platform. Jericho sat down, careful not to plop rudely into the seat. The mechanic fixed Jericho in the chair, using thick belts on his wrists and ankles. He bound Jericho's slight chest with a wide band of leather. In the hush of the crowd, the clanking of buckles and jangling of metal links and clasps rang like loud bells. Once Jericho sat, held fast in the chair, the mechanic stood his full height and turned to face us. "'Today you are all somber, yet I assure you that the service that I am about to perform "'is part of the social order of the biology of the masses. "'Just as a harmful germ or a hurtful sliver is ejected from the body in a bubble of pus, "'so must a force of injury and counterproductivity be ejected from the body politic.' "'The mechanic spotted the sobbing Mrs. Doherty behind me and reached a sympathetic hand toward her. "'I urge you not to weep for this man. Today,' is a day of cleansing. He turned to the gathering of young adult men, assembled to the right of his stage. If my eleven power sources could mount their assigned devices, please. Eleven young men, whom the mechanic had hand-picked earlier that day, climbed the steps to the stage and mounted the cycles. These striplings will participate in the making of history. Each cycle has been outfitted with magnets and coils. As they pedal, the turbine rotation will supply an amount of alternating current. Altogether, these cycles will produce a constant flow of at least 250 volts. The mechanic stepped to the center of the stage, where Jericho sat, bound to the chair. He crouched to a steel bucket that rested at his feet and withdrew a large, dripping sponge. Human skin is a natural shield against electricity. It resists current at approximately 10,000 ohms. I looked across the crowd. Everyone seemed perplexed, except for Phineas Aldrich, who stroked his chin and nodded, drinking in every word the mechanic spoke. The mechanic continued his explanation. But by moistening the skin with salt water, he squeezed the sponge over Jericho's head. Brian ran out onto his face, drenching his shoulders, chest, and lap. Jericho gasped at the coldness of the water. We can lower the human body's resistance to 1,000 ohms. At this level, a mere 100 to 300 volts is sufficient to eliminate the stability of the heart and humanely dispatch the subject. The mechanic turned to the 11 young men. If you would please proceed. The young men glanced at one another, none daring to pedal. I assure you nothing will happen until I throw this lever. The mechanic rested a single pale hand on the large lever that extended upward from the stage. After an uncertain moment, Barry Philbin, Chad's older brother, began to pedal. The smooth glide of ball bearings, accompanied by the light clicky-clack of Barry's cycle chain, began its unsympathetic drone. The other ten young men followed suit each leaning into his set of handlebars, their legs pumping electricity into the mechanic's machine. 
I heard Mrs. Doherty's sobs rise behind me as the mechanic continued dousing Jericho's body with brine. He fixed the metallic hat on Jericho's head and cinched it down with a leather hanks that ran under the chin. To effectively stop the heart, we must run uninterrupted electricity from the brain through the heart. Hence, I have attached current generating points to the head, the wrists, and the ankles. The mechanic reached into a bag fastened to the back of the chair and withdrew a black hood. During electrocution, the subject's face will contort. Some find the random firing of muscle fibers under the skin to be somewhat unsightly. Hence, I will mask the subject. The mechanic dropped the hood over Jericho's head and cinched it tight around his neck with a drawstring. With Jericho securely bound and hooded, the mechanic stepped to the front of the stage and fixed the crowd with a somber expression. Now, for the question of culpability. I realize that there could be some among you who have the tendency to allow questions of ethics to cloud the sociobiological reality of the function I am about to perform. Hedging against such sentiment, I have left one of the cyclical generators disconnected. Neither you nor I know which of the boys peddles the dummy generator. Hence, there is room to assume that none of the boys are guilty of perceived inhumanity. Then the mechanic seemed to look directly into my eyes. I started at his blank, emotionless stare, at the lack of compassion or angst. I saw in his eyes only apathy and pragmatism. He spoke. The act you see today, whether considered ethical or unconscionable, marks the future of humanity. For we now enter an era where technology will supersede sentiment. It is, as the prophet Daniel says, a stone cut out without hands that will become a great mountain and feel the whole earth. The mechanic drew the lever. Jericho's body arched, every muscle contracting. The sinews in his neck stood out like cables. I expected to hear him scream, but he only chortled, as if laughing at a sick joke. My father once took the strap to me for using a large magnifying glass I had ordered from the Sears catalog to burn a hole in the flank of my sheepdog, Heinz. The smell of Jericho, jittering and quaking on the stage before me, reminded me of Heinz's cooking fur under the pinpoint of heat I had focused on his rear. I wanted to look away, but something deep inside forced me to watch the whole spectacle unfold. The mechanic allowed the boy Jericho to quake and crackle on the stage for nearly three minutes before throwing the lever again. Jericho's body fell flaccid, his head tilted to one side under the dark hood. The Indian summer of 1893 passed. I spent my days with Pepper and my little brother Arliss. We built a tree house in a skyscraping cherry behemoth in the back of Pepper's orchard. We pretended to be cowboys and Indians. We swam in the canal. We worked for three weeks picking fruit and spent our earnings on candy and trinkets at the co-op. At the end of the summer, it was back to Mrs. Cranberry's class to learn how to read and count. We lived our lives in the usual way, finding both joyful and disappointing moments. But ever since that hot summer day when I stood in front of the livery and watched the mechanic demonstrate his machine, I felt changed. Although I can't identify exactly what it was, I can't help but feel that something deep inside was taken away and that it will never be restored. This has been The Mechanic, written by Craig Nibo. 
For more stories by Craig Nibo, visit craignibo.com. The Mechanic was first published in an excellent biannual literary journal called the Pisgah Review. I became intrigued by the rivalry between Tesla and Edison. Tesla developed something called alternating current, while Edison pushed something called direct current. In a smear campaign, Edison toured the U.S. and killed small animals using Tesla's brand of power. In perhaps one of the most diabolical moments in history, Edison funded production of an electric chair to prove the dangers of AC power. The chair was used on William Kemmler, a convicted murderer. The execution was gruesome. Kemmler cooked for seven minutes under the current. After a coroner declared him dead, Kemmler began to move. So they cooked him again, literally. Witnesses spoke of smoke rising from Kemmler's head. Several witnesses passed out or had to leave the room due to the smell of cooking flesh and the terror of the moment. To research the mechanic, I sat down with my dad, who is an electrical engineer, and asked if bicycles could be used to generate enough power to electrocute someone. Together, we devised a terrible, pedal-driven death machine. Technically, this story is feasible. For this week's song, I thought I'd give you a taste of Tesla v. Cthulhu the musical. I'm kickstarting this project soon. Please visit craignibo.com to get more information and to send me your email address so I can update you on the project's progress as well as other cool upcoming releases. In this song, Cthulhu himself croons about his plans to enslave the entire Earth and place all of us humans under his iron glove. I give you Cthulhu himself, crooner, old god, evil despot, in It's Great to be King. Buddy. 
these are once again unfurled My sovereign foot will come down again And rumble the swells and dells of this infernal land And when the people are running in fear From pole to pole on the spear To finally know on whose planet they stand It's great to be with you It's great to be here Can't wait for the premiere Of my pernicious career I'm gonna take you to places heretofore Unknown I'm gonna rake you across the burning sun I'm gonna shake you until you call your mommy's name I'm gonna flake you and flay you just for fun and fantasies. Oh yeah? I can stop all over your world with one delusion behind my back. This is madness. Baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. Science will win out in the end. Keep saying that, Nikki. Why don't you just keep saying that? Let me ask you something. My little message from the stars, did you decipher it? It was only series of garbled pulses. Science. <laughs> I sent that message for years. You could even manage to get the words right. Let me translate for you. People of Earth, get ready for the biggest, the bullest, the mightiest, the best-lookingest, heartbreakingest of them all. The great dreamer, the sleeper of Ralea. The great-great-grandson of Shub Nagarov. And let me tell you, baby, pedigree means everything. The high priest of the great old ones himself, Cthulhu, is entering the building. And it's going to be an earth-shattering party, to say the least. Get ready for the ignominious end of the world, baby. It's great to be king. This has been the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Please, come again. You're welcome here.